Hi, I'm Tyler Austin. Welcome back to the Skylight Books podcast, the uh, Skylight Books, where I'm a bookseller, 1818 Vermont. Uh, you should obviously come out and check out the store. And again, like I said, thanks again for, for tuning into the podcast today. I'm joined by Alex Papadimus, who is the author of Keanu Reeves' Most Triumphant, The Movies and Meaning of an Irrepressible Icon, and writer and host of the acclaimed podcast, The Big Hit Show. His work has also appeared in GQ, The New York Times, and Grantland. Uh, today, we are going to be discussing his upcoming work, Quantum Criminals, Ramblers, Wild Gamblers, and Other Soul Survivors from the Song Cecilia Dan. Alex, thanks so much for uh, jumping on the pod with me today. I'm so happy to be here, Tyler. Thank you. Yeah, there's nothing like getting a chance to just talk about Cecilia Dan. Uh, it's, it's, it's what we all live for. I have gotten to do it uh, in the last few weeks. Uh, so much, which is really great to have this <laughs> be my job to talk to people that are as unreasonably obsessed with Steely Dan as I am. It's uh, I, I, I'm not speaking to a lot of uh, Dan agnostic interviewers. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a self-selecting group of people who who want to talk about this, which is which is great. I uh, we we wanted this to be. Yeah, you know, we wanted this to be something that you could give to the the, the people who maybe aren't, you know, convinced of Steely Dan's greatness. But let's let's face it, like this is first and foremost for 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 the the, the true heads, and uh, it's been it's been nice to connect uh, with so many people that uh, kind of share our love of this band. Absolutely, I mean, because it is like a fierce sort of love. I mean, it is an undying, like true, true died sort of love when it comes to this band, I feel like. And it inspires the kind of thing where it's like, you don't, you don't really meet the passing Steely Dan fan in this world very often. No, I mean, I'm sure like, you know, there's probably, there's people who are like, yeah, I love reeling in the years and kind of don't <laughs> go, in, you know, cause they do have, you know, seven like giant hits that you would hear if you just listen to, you know, uh, coast radio or whatever. And your, your, your oldies station, like you could, you could just sort of, you know, experience that at the surface level, but you know, anybody who's going to get excited about, you know, caves of Altamira or, or whatever, it's, it's just, it's like, you know, you're kind of, I'm kind of like putting out a, a bat signal to a, a certain, you know, a certain audience for sure. And it's, but they're, they're everywhere. They're within the, you know, they are the Steely Dan fans are controlling the, the, the wheels of culture right now. And, you know, they, the, the, there's a judge, you know, so they're, they're, they're highly placed in all these institutions and uh, they, they want to talk to us and it's been really fun. It's awesome. Uh, well, yeah, quickly, just right up top. I want to say also, we'll, you'll be having an event at skylight books, 1818 North Vermont on May 31st. Uh, I believe it's seven o'clock might be seven 30, but uh, either there, way, get there in that, at seven. just show up. Get there at seven, at seven. Hang out. Just, We're going to have Steely Dan on the box. It's going to be great. It's going to be a party. Uh, so it's going to be an awesome event. You're talking with Matthew Spector in conversation, but yeah, that is correct. Matthew Spector, the author of the amazing, uh, always crashing in the same car among uh, other things. But, uh, yeah, that is a great book, by the way, if you are excited about this book, you will, and you don't know about that book, uh, you will love that book. I, I, I it's, it's, it's really great. It's an amazing book about sort of, uh, kind of gentlemen losers and Hollywood and, <laughs> all of those things. And, uh, you know, Matthew kind of, uh, 
tracing his own life through the artists that he's been obsessed with. There's, you know, stuff in there, you know, Warren Zevon, Thomas McGuane, people wow. like that. It's, it's, it's like, uh, it, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled to death that he's doing it. Like I, I know him a little bit, but like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so psyched that he was, he was available to, to, to talk. I think it's going to be a really fun conversation and he's stoked about it too. That's awesome. It's going to be, it's, yeah, it's going to be a great event. We're going to have a great time. So yeah, please make sure to come out for that. Uh, so I guess just I'll start sort of here at the beginning. Uh, what what was sort of the true impetus for this? I mean, obviously beyond your Steely Dan fandom. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, this all goes back to uh, Jones and my mutual friend, Jessica Hopper, uh, who started uh, a, a job uh, with the University of Texas Press out of uh, UT Austin, uh, sort of acquiring books for their uh well, for their, you know, for their imprint, but specifically for their American music series. Uh, Jessica and I had uh, just uh, sort of gotten uh, laid off together um, <laughs> recently. Uh, we'd worked together. We'd, sort of, we'd known each other for a while, but we'd sort of, we'd worked together just at uh, MTV News uh, for a minute. And she was doing this UT thing. And she's like, uh, what's, what's a music book that you could write? And, you know, if you wanted to, you know, if you uh, sort of basically if I gave you the opportunity to write a music book for UT, like what would you want to do? Like anything at all. And I was like, I think I could write a Steely Dan book because um, I kind of both both of my books are kind of the product of me saying, like, what am I not going to get tired of thinking about because I'm going to have to sustain through a process that's longer, like I'm, I'm 45 years old and I've been, most of my writing has been, I, uh, you know, for, I've been writing for 20 years and most of it has been like 4,000 words at maximum. So like writing books is like, it was, it was very <laughs> daunting to think about it. Cause it's like, what am I going to be able to, you know, what's going to sort of power me through this process, like at the, you know, in the hard parts, cause writing a book, it, you know, some days it just fucking sucks. Um, and <laughs> it's basically, it's like, and I, I knew that was going to be the case. And I, you know, I've sort of like started and stopped like, you know, over the years because of it. And so it has to be something that I never get tired of thinking about. So I never get tired of talking about Keanu Reeves, thinking about Keanu Reeves. And I never get tired of uh, sort of pondering the mysteries of Steely Dan. Uh, so I was, I think like pretty far down the road with a, a proposal like i had a sam i think i had like i don't know if i was writing sample chapters yet but i had definitely kind of broken it out into what i wanted to do and like i my, i think my pitch to to jessica was um it was uh like maggie nelson's bluettes um, oh okay with but about Opposite, steely for Dan. the audio those listening uh alex just made that appear off screen like a magician that was amazing it was I so am, so near to you yeah, well, no, I, yeah, I'm in a room full of this is where all my books are. So like, I actually like this is my, I'm in my garage, but like, this is where I keep all of my, uh, the, you know, the, the bulk of my and my wife's uh, sort of lifelong uh, book collection is out here because we just never figured out we don't have shelves in the house. Um, yeah, so uh, struggle of space, the book collection always. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, I'm, I'm always like jealous of people like, you know, it's like, I don't care if you have a pool, but if you have built ins, like, I feel like you're a god, like, I'm just like, how did you do that? <laughs> Uh, so as like I was kind of doing it and I was it was going to be it was going to be like so that book is all like micro essays like it's a really short uh, you know just like a paragraph long kind of like observation it's all about the color blue and it's like it's, it's amazing Maggie Nelson's you know good Maggie Nelson's I'm not telling you anything about them. um you people listening to the skylight podcast you know too I don't need to explain <laughs> anything about that read blue I read the Argonauts like you know come on um, but, uh, so I'd done that. I was working on that. And, uh, then 
kind of out of nowhere, although this was something that she'd been planning to do for a long time, uh, the great Joan LeMay, uh, who's a longtime friend of Jessica's and a, a sort of a professional acquaintance of mine in like a former life, but like we've actually never, uh, we've never really met in person and we've never sort of thought about collaborating, uh, announced on Instagram that she was going to do a zine called Danzine and she was going to draw every person mentioned every fictional <laughs> character every you know real person uh sort of imaginary person from the songs of steely dan and we both jessica and i both saw that and we're like that's an amazing organizing principle for a book about steely dan that's such a good like hook it's such a good like rubric to organize all of this stuff under and so jessica immediately texted joan and was like joni this is not a a, a zine this is a book are you kidding like we're then sort of like basically kind of matchmaked that process. And then I kind of reconfigured what I was thinking about. And so a lot of the stuff that I ended up doing it for this book is was in the proposal when it was just going to be my book, but it was like, it just kind of, you know, it, it just made it sort of, it was a, just a different way to, to think about it. And it narrowed everything down in a, in a nice way and, and made it, you know, easy to, relatively easy to to kind of think about it because i i like a I like a structure you know i'm like it's i need it's it's hard to think about like what are you going to do like you have to write a 240 page book about something and even if it's something you know a lot about already and are excited to learn more about it's like where do you even like there's the 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 quote from kurt vonnegut about writing a novel is it's like putting on a suit of armor to attack a hot fudge sundae which i love <laughs> it's just like it's like what are you even like how do you where do you begin and like, it's, you know, like, I, I, I love that. I think it's, it's true of nonfiction too. It's like, you have this giant sort of subject that you can go into. And so once it was like, okay, Joan's going to do a portrait of G Gordon Liddy um, for, uh, you know, daddy G for Chino G daddy G and she's going to imagine my old what, school. Yeah. Yeah. For, for my old school. So she's going to do, she's going to draw Gordon Liddy and she's going to do a port, like sort of a portrait of him and Chino, who we've decided is like his, his sort of informant on the inside, who's kind of narking the rest of the Bard College stoners out to Jet Daddy G, which is something that happened in the life of Steely Dan for people who don't know, like when they were at Bard College, they were both caught up in this giant drug bust. That's like a historic drug bust in the history where like uh, the local PD with the help of the county sheriff of the county where Bart is, I forget the name of it, but he was the, you know, the, the county sheriff and it's G Gordon Liddy who goes on in a few years to be one of the Watergate plumbers and sort of goes on to be, you know, infamous and goes to prison and for his involvement in Watergate and everything. And is like the kind of the, you know, the guy, you know, you know who G Gordon Liddy is, but like, it's sort of, so once I knew that there's, okay, so it's going to be a portrait of G Gordon Liddy. I'm going to write an essay that goes with that that has that deals with steely dan and so that's how i'm going to talk about my old school and like about sort of that and about bard and stuff like that so it just was like it was a way to for me it became a way to just organize the thoughts that i had about this and keep it from being kind of the thing that i was imagining i think probably would have you know been hard to structure and might have been you know confusing for people and i think it's just sort of like oh this is about jack from do it again this is about the protagonist of do it again and we're going to talk about do it again through the lens of this character and I, I think like once you know once we had that i think it just you know 
it was awesome. And then like the other, th- I mean, the, you know, the other reason it's a good idea is that this is now this, you know, it's this beautiful book that has like its own kind of visual identity that, yeah. uh, you know, you don't always get with a music book where you're kind of like, you know, it's, it's sort of, it, it's kind of in the shadow of the artist's visual identity a little bit. And I think that's now sort of has, has its own thing. And I think it's like, you know, it's affected like the tone of the book, I think, because there's such like, Joan stuff is so colorful and joyous and it's such a it's such a great way to talk about these like depressing stories like these sad (laughs) these poor people (laughs) who are kind of doomed and self-deluded and everything and so I kind of like that it takes it to like sort of almost like it's almost like a fairy tale place and you know and some of it reminds me of like you know like Alice in Wonderland illustrations or something like that and I love that about it because that's like goes to a place that I never could have taken it you know i never could i never could have done that with it so it's it you know i I think it's it's just been i've been saying this a lot but you know i i have friends who are in comics and like they're always they talk about you know when they write a script and then they get the art back from the artist and it's like something that they could you know like it's so much cooler than they imagined this scene being and i'm always jealous of that experience when i hear about it and that's what this was like that like you know we would like you know we were sending stuff back and forth and joan was like doing these paintings as i was doing the essays and i was like shit like that's so much greater than like i would have thought you know (laughs) i i I, we sort of talked about we were like you know i'd be like yeah i think the third world man is a guy with a tinfoil hat he's like a conspiracy guy or something and like that was you know and then you get it back and be like oh my god like it's just you know so i i think that's that that's the long story of how it came about it's just it's it's weird we kind of hijacked Joan's much smaller project and turned it into a much bigger project. Um, but it, it all, it, it, it all worked out in the end. Here we are. Yeah. Talking about it, so it's, it's, uh, I mean, like you say, I mean, it's a brilliant organizing structure because you also go back to all these steely dance songs and you think like, right, these are all about, again, these characters, these seedy underground characters. And, they're always they're always on the verge of a nervous breakdown or a drug deal or and so it's just this perfect way to get into them and uh, no I mean I, I it's like the moment I heard what it was I was like that's that's perfect that is perfect and and it also allows you to do this amazing thing where I mean so I, I have a, I I got to read a galley again my fandom is strong enough that someone at my work was like I'm getting him a galley. And so I, I've, I've had the chance to, to go over and read it all. And it's just like, you get to do these great pocket histories of all these kind of, you know, the constellation of weird characters that existed in the band, tangentially around the band. I and mean, I think about the G. Gordon Liddy thing where it's like, you know, you, you get to include this quote where he's like, I'm glad I went to prison. I'm proud of it. I'd do it again. Like, you know, these, these, these maniacs, these people who were just floating around in that time period is fascinating so i think it just it's such a brilliant uh ploy it's a it's a great way to break it down and so uh i yeah i i can't recommend it enough for, for that alone and the art is amazing uh this isn't a question i'm just gushing now i can't i can't help myself good no, look look i sit uh, i sat in this room for a year sort of thinking everybody was gonna hate this so like i'm not tired of this yet i'm not i'm i might get tired and be like oh <laughs> the adulation makes me feel so ill but like i'm not there yet <laughs> no, I mean, it was, I really, this is a thank you, but it's like, it was, it was just such a cool way to think about it. Cause then it, then it was like, oh, like then we're going to, now I can see like, oh, I'm going to write about like whatever I can see through the keyhole of, of this character becomes like something I can put in this, in this book. And so it's not just limited to 
it's not just about Steely Dan. It's about, it tries to be about their era, you know, and the times that shaped them. Cause I actually feel like as esoteric as they were, like they were really kind of reporting the news in some like weird, you know, sideways kind of way about their time. And I think they're very much like representative figures of their time. These, these guys who are, you know, kind of get, they participate in everything that's happening in the sixties to the extent that they do. Donald takes a bunch of acid that he's written about this. And like, you know, they've, they, they live that whole life and they, you know, and like then kind of moved on and watched what happened as the sixties kind of, you know, spread across the land in the seventies, like, and how, you know, then what that was like and what that, how that changed people's lives and, and, and all of that. And I think that it, that's like the kind of bigger story that's being told in the, the the whole Steely Dan canon, in addition to these kind of very small sort of seedy kind of noirish tales that they're telling about people at the end of various ropes. So I, I, I thought that was the funnest part about, you know, doing a, a band like this, that I think it, it did open it up to, you know, I, I feel like they were very much like of their time and you could talk about their time by talking about them. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I was going to, so, uh, I mean, it's, book is like insanely, incredibly, beautifully well-researched. And, uh, I mean, just like there is, I, I was going through just like the, uh, I guess, you know, play, uh, the back here to find like all the reference, like, what are these, where did all these things come from? And there's like a CompuServe interview they gave in 2002. And so, I, I kind of think of like, and I and, and I guess correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think of like Bill Brooks and, uh, and Gene Wilder when they were making Young Frankenstein were like, if we could just keep making this movie forever, we'd be the happiest people on the planet. And I kind of imagine that's you digging through every piece of Steely Dan ephemera oh. and forever. So, yeah. <laughs> of course. No, I mean, that's like just reading just old old rock magazines that don't exist anymore you know like like just like things that you've never even heard of where like they just happen to to give an interview just because they're so good and so funny that like even a bad interview like you did like somebody who's a good like good interviewers like they bad interviewers they were good no matter what and like even the, like it's you know and they're so smart and so funny and like just following like everything that they said is yeah it was it, like that that just is incredibly enjoyable to go and just read you know all of this you know kind of back matter and ephemera that's out there about them for sure and then reading all the sort of tangential stuff that like has nothing to do with them like just getting into like we just published today uh on the the expanding dan substack newsletter um uh, which okay. is a great if you're if anybody steely dan fans like uh jake uh from expanding dan is uh, you know doing the like he's doing like a sort of like you know primary source resource research in a way that uh, this you know that i kind of didn't <laughs> he's like talking to every person who played on these records and like getting those stories or that's how it started because he did this big whack poetic article about uh the making of the steely dan records but then uh he's now just kind of you know covering other dan related topics but he just excerpted the chapter about dildos um yes. like yes beautiful painting of dildos in that chapter beautiful uh, in the style of uh philip guston's uh, monument if you've ever seen that it's like it's with that <laughs> but like it's made out of dildos and that was not my idea i just was i 
I talked to, I figured out that we needed to do it, like added a chapter at some point. I was like, we need to talk about the, the band being named after a, a famous uh, literary dildo. They're named after this, you know, a device that appears in William Burroughs's Naked Lunch. Um, and I wanted to write about that and about Burroughs a little bit because he was obviously, he was an influence that yeah. they had to really downplay because they get, it was the thing they got asked about in every interview. So they got tired of talking about it. But then I was kind of like, what are, you know, is this, does that make, the dildo is called Steely Dan. Does that make it the most famous literary dildo? And so I did a like a like a week of yeah. like just reading about you know other sort of dildos in literature and like what the sort of famous one you know like what would be the previously the most famous literary dildo and like where that appeared. And I mean, this is the the, the magic of collaboration because I was kind of like, okay, I think I'm gonna I need to ask Joan to paint a dildo and uh, like <laughs> I sort of envisioned it. I was picturing kind of like, I don't know if I ever talked to her about this, but I was sort of envisioning like, you know, that thing that they have at the barber shop where it's like, these are the 30 haircuts that you can get. Uh, sure, sure, that sure. Sign yeah, yeah. that's like all the sort of the different, here's the different fades. <laughs> right, cut, buzz cut, this, this, yeah, this, yeah. yeah, the box, the box fade and the thing of like, you know, I want this, I want, I want waves or whatever. Uh, like I was just picturing like that, but for, you know, like dildos. And, uh, you know, I, I, the, but the Philip Gustan, it's like, it's like beautiful. It's kind of in like sunset colors. Like it's really nice. Um, and so it, it like uh, that, you know, again, that's better, better than I could have imagined. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, that was, so, but I'm like, you know, reading about, you know, sort of like sort of 14th century poetry or whatever about this. So I kind of like, you know, that's, but that's what I like about, you know, the thing about like magazine writing and writing short for things is that you're always, um, teaching yourself everything there is to know about a subject for a month and then you don't ever use any of this information <laughs> again but you spend so much time digging into the history that you end up with all of this kind of random knowledge about like strongman competitions or you know the, the life of Jean-Claude Van Damme and like maybe you could find a way to use it but yes I could probably have just mulched doing research <laughs> in this room for uh, you know uh, uh, like i wrote this one pretty fast but like i could i could have taken three years uh, to do it and you know there's still stuff that you know i'd like would want to get into further like kathy barbarian who's the opera singer who's mentioned in your gold teeth too fascinating so interesting and like i i knew nothing of, like i had sort of googled her at one point to figure it out like once you know like just because as a steely dan fan you're like what who even is this i thought it was like a friend of theirs <laughs> right. i thought it was somebody they knew and they just kind of put her name in there but she's not she's this amazing sort of avant-garde uh you know she's a like i think like the most avant-garde singer that i can really sort of think of like somebody doing things with their voice that is on a level like a, with a john cage or like an arnett coleman or something like that and like just but also super interested in pop music and in like the beatles like she did a record of like really crazy vocal beatles covers um and was really Those trying to <laughs> yeah and was like really trying and i didn't really know any of this and like was really trying to bring you know, not not sort of to, you know, gentrify the Beatles by making them into opera or classical music, but like actually saying to the to her establishment, to the sort of, you know, composed music establishment that like this is this is where it's at. And it's like she was trying to lead. It's the they were the horse that she was trying to lead to the water of the Beatles and not the other way around. And like I thought that like she's just really, really cool. Like there's a documentary of her where she's got like, you know, sort of 
doing her interviews, her talking head interview. She's got a drink in her hand and a gold chain and a black <laughs> turtleneck. And you're just like, this is the, this is the hippest person. This is one of the hippest people who ever lived. Um, and like just getting into all that and just reading about John Cage and, and, and all of it. So it's, you know, like, I hope like the joy of, of finding these weird connections, uh, you know, between Steely Dan and the larger world of, you know, culture and history and all that is like, sort of comes through in the book. If that's the case, then we have, we have won. We have succeeded. I, um, I'm going to, yes, it happens. It, <laughs> yes. It's, all right. It's, good. It's, I, I'm going to, for me, you get my stamp of approval. Yeah. That's one. All right. All right. Good. Now good. Good. Everyone good. else. We're going to find, uh, I, I, mean, I trust you. So focus group of one. That's right. great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I am uh, the every man truly. Uh, <laughs> well, I was... man, the man on the street just outside, yeah, outside, you know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I was gonna ask so is there any so because again it's so well researched there's so many great little tidbits and things stuff that's like lore and things that I had never heard before but like is there anything you were like dying to get in the book that just couldn't get in um yeah but it's not like it's I don't know that it's exactly like what you're asking about like there was there was stuff there there does like come a point where you're like no one but me is gonna know that this isn't in here <laughs> So I can let go of this thing that I've been meaning to write or this thing that there's a few things that I started working on because this is very I wrote this in a very kind of modular way where it was like they're all individual little files within a larger like Scrivener document. And so I would just kind of move around within the thing as I was like, oh, this like I think I got something for this today or I'm going to tackle this and kind of bring that, you know, like revise the first draft version of this thing or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, there were certain ones that just didn't get finished to the point that I liked them. And it was, if they were not essential to the story, I didn't use them, but there was a whole thing about like, there was going to be like a sort of epilogue ish chapter that was going to be about these two kind of semi-obscure, pretty obscure Steely Dan remix albums. One of them is uh, a record called Danable by uh, Sex, C-E-X, the electronic uh, musician um, who did a really great, you can get it, it's on Bandcamp. I think both of these are on Bandcamp. Um, a record made entirely out of really small Steely Dan samples that almost feels like, it almost feels like if the if the Steely Dan albums are like a like a nice clock, or something it's like you hit the clock with a hammer and then you build something out of what fall like it explodes everywhere like and then it's like and the other one was a, a thing that uh my, my friend uh ben lambert lambo who's the uh he's, he's freddie gibbs's manager made a uh, slowed uh slowed and throwed screwed and chopped uh and so it was going to be about, I was going to write about these two things. I might still do it because I, I put, I started a newsletter just to, you know, for promotional things and I got to figure out stuff to do there. And so I might actually just write this just at some point. So I should probably not be talking about it, but it's fine. I'll talk about it. Uh, <laughs> like that was going to be in there. So I was going to talk about those things. And I think that, you know, that was going to be about just basically how like this, this impulse to tinker with Steely Day to figure out like how it works um so slowly dan was really important to me because it you're you're you really get a different sense of how the parts fit together um by listening to it uh at half speed like you're sort of like oh here comes that guitar part and like you can really sort of hear it come in it's it's almost like it you know mm -hmm. it, it it like lit, it breaks breaks the spell that the original recording puts on you and you can kind of hear how it's how it's working because it's you know 
coming at you kind of underhand, you know, over the plate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so Ben is thanked in the book, but like, you won't know why until he, unless he listens to the podcast because there's nothing about Slowly Dan <laughs> in the book. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. I think, I think there was probably things that were like, I could have gone further down the rabbit hole and sometimes it was about time and efficiency and all and like mm. like i said it was that feeling of like this is going to be the reader is not going to be ill served if this isn't here i will i can ill serve myself a little bit like i have the thing that i want to do and like it's but like i the, the most important thing is finishing the book you know so i think <laughs> that was kind of like where it would you know where where it goes um like i have to like i probably could have done way more about uh john Dabola, who's the california photographer who takes pictures of burned malibu beach houses which i feel like are some of the most steely danish images in a way they really sort of speak to me about like the, the what like the vibe of of gaucho where it's almost like you know the 70s are coming to an end and we're kind of you know looking around at the the, the carnage of this time <laughs> what's and left what is, yeah what's left and so john davola was this guy who would go out he's this photographer who would go out to um he would photograph he started photographing like i think like a, abandoned buildings that had been not abandoned buildings that had been like eminent domained uh for like mm. the, i think the I forget, it's not lax it was like some other airport that was maybe somewhere in orange county like something one of those mm. airports um, and so they were going to be, these buildings were going to be torn down, but like in the meantime, there were just these sort of uh, abandoned structures that people would go in and kind of like fuck with and like spray paint and stuff. And like, he would do it too, because he was very much about breaking the rule, the photographer rule of like your own intervention being part of it. So he would, he would make weird spray paint marks in these structures or like throw like a newspaper in the air and take a picture of that. So it would be, his hand would be somehow present in the, in the work. And then he did this series where he went, kept going back to this one um, empty beach house in Malibu that was used by, I think, like basically, you know, teenagers and like vagrants as like a hangout, um, but also by the fire department uh, who would uh, use it to practice putting out fires. So they would set it on fire and put it on, you know, put it out and eventually it burned to the ground in one of those things. Yeah. But like he's taking these beautiful <laughs> pictures where like it's this framed window, like he would shoot through a window so you could see the beach outside and the, the placid kind of like calm ocean at sunset. You would go very early in the morning or very late when there'd be nobody there. Um, so it was either at dusk or at dawn. And there'd be this beautiful kind of like expanse outside the window of, uh, you know, of ocean, sea and sky, calm sea and sky that doesn't care about us and is going to be the same no matter what. And then it would be framed by this like just incredibly fucked up house that was like had burned, burned, <laughs> burned, burned right. curtains and like weird kind of like Twin Peaksy sort of graffito on the wall and everything. And like something about that just felt so especially gaucho especially the late very california mm. stuff from the 70s where it was like you know the you, you the, the the sort of the juxtaposition which is the sort of the juxtaposition that's always happening in la where it's like you know whatever is going on on the ground whatever sort of the man-made world and whatever the chaos of of our world and then you sort of you can look and there's some beautiful purple mountain majesty in the distance or the ocean or some kind of something like that like that is you know that like i said doesn't care about us doesn't feel anything it's just something like 
And like, I said, so that's like, you know, topic for further investigation, I guess. Like, so he's, he's in there and mentioned as a reference point, but it was definitely like, I, I imagine that being much longer um, as, as you can see, since I just talked about it for 45 minutes uh, without you letting <laughs> me say anything. Just, just, I'm sorry. Oh, it, oh, no, no, that's, I mean, it's fascinating. <laughs> that was a great, I love that. And, and it's kind of a beautiful, it is a, a metaphor for Steely Dan in many ways, right? I feel like they are, they they give you this beautiful packaged sort of uncaring perfection you know if you were to be uh uh negative about it in the way that some people can they would say it's like uh it's almost sealed tight kind of no no room to breathe but it's airless ocean, yeah. it's sky it's beautiful airless and then you just pull if you were to pull back just five feet you're like oh i'm in this burned house of uh <laughs> that's that's graffitied and destroyed and, and yeah. it's all great it's yeah and it's amazing. And, uh, it's kind of a perfect so that, metaphor. Yeah. So I talked about it in the context of Third World Man, the last song on Gaucho, uh, you know, the, the the really the sort of the moment when basically Steely Dan, Mark One, the 70s version, and just kind of like limps across the finish line. And that's the end of them for until like 1993. Like they're just exhausted and worn out and they don't, you know, they sort of basically break up, like not really acrimoniously, but they just are like, we're not going to do this anymore. We can't you know, do this to ourselves. We've tortured ourselves with, with quest for perfection for, for too long. And so I kind of, and that, that song is about a burning house. And, uh, you know, I think that's, you know, how, how I got there uh, somehow, but like, that's the, you know, it was one of those things where it's like, nobody, nobody needs that to understand this necessarily. <laughs> and like, I, had right, to, I had right, to say, right, like, right. it's not you, that's the, always when you're writing, it's like, this is, you know, my wife and my wife is a writer as well. And we always talk about this, uh, that, you know, you, no one knows, but you, what it was supposed to be like in your head, mm -hmm. um, before yeah. it happens. And like, that's, that's also the, I mean, it's, it's, and it's the Steely Dan thing too. It's like, they didn't, they didn't care about that. They didn't care that no one would know. They're like, we have to get it to the level where we wanted it, where like we have, it has to be the thing that we have imagined. It has to sound like what we thought it should sound like. And, you know, that's, that's how you end up doing 250 takes of, yes. you know, a two word phrase in the song home at last uh, for Asia. Like, yeah. and you just kind of, you know, you just ruin your life and your health and your mind and everything. And I think that's uh, like, you know, that's the, that's, that's, that's what happened there. They, they are fascinating in that they like, they do fall into some of the trappings of the band, like obviously like uh, of, of rock and roll bands at that time, like Walter's drug addiction that seems to worsen as the decade goes on. But it's like more than anything, it's like, they just, they ruin themselves at, again, at the idea of perfection. Like they just, it's not, they're not tired of the road, really. I mean, they just quit it. They're smart enough to be like, we're done. And they're just like, they lose their minds in the studio. And they're like, we need an entire decade to just chill out. It's yeah. kind of, a, I, I, they're not many bands like that. who are just that, you know, that tight. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, right. Where that's the reason like that you don't, you have yes, to stop doing it. Like clearly like Walter's struggles uh, with all of the, with, with addiction uh, didn't, I, I'm sure hastened that ending, but you know, bands like go on and like function through that. And like a band like Steely Dan, like maybe even could have, because he sort he, Walter was like, it wouldn't, you know, he's famously said like, it wouldn't bother me to not play on my own record. And like some, you know, it, a lot of gaucho, like that's the case. Like it's mostly the, you know, if you're mostly just writing music for other people to play, like theoretically, but there was something I think about you just like, 
I think because Donald didn't have Walter so much by the end, mm-hmm. you know, like, like he's sort of like you read the stories, like there's a, you know, Rolling Stone profile that sort of they like, you know, had a writer in the studio while they were making finishing Gaucho. And, you know, it's just Donald is just miserable at the console, like engaged in this, you know, very kind of painstaking, exacting, you know, painful Steely Dan process. And he doesn't have walter who's the guy who i mean like i think the you know the the sort of animating thing of steely dan is these two guys amusing each other literally making each other laugh like telling each other like having a really shared sense of humor and a shared sort of you know like in jokes and all of that but also kind of like being like wouldn't it be great if we did this wouldn't it be great if it sounded like that it's like they were pleasing themselves first as artists and then once you do, you know once like walter doesn't have donald i mean sorry once donald doesn't have walter it changes yeah like, yeah, yeah it, it 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 changes the you know the 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 dynamic i think and made it probably harder to be the you know to to continue wanting to do this like you know cuz I, I and i so i think that's like you know, it, this is very much, it's very much a love story, I think, between two guys. It's a creative love story. And it's a, you know, and then they kind of, then they, they, they reunite at the end, which is, which is awesome. Like they kind of, re, they meet back up. But like in the meantime, like without what, you know, Donald has said, like it was really hard for him to learn to write without Walter as the, you know, the foil and the buffer and the guy who finished the sentences, as it were. And that's why it took so long after the yeah. Nightfly comes out. It's like Nightfly is 82 and then he doesn't do anything for, you know, decades after that. You, you kind of said that in the book and, and I kind of love the way that you, you're, you're interpreting all these things. Obviously you're like the expert, but you can like kind of hopefully read the tea leaves in a way where it's like, you kind of say he, he just needs a guy to kind of give himself, you're right to, to end the sentences, but to like almost give him a, a buffer from people being like, uh, those are Donald Fagan's thoughts, you know, <laughs> like, like mm-hmm. only Donald, Fagan. like he needed the extra guy to also help him just be like, I'm, you know, uh, I, I'm not just the only one thinking or saying these things. I have someone else with me. And then it's ultimately the character you kind of keep returning to Mr. Steely Dan, which I think is so interesting. It's like a way to use the first person and to have the power of the first person without necessarily you know having everybody assume that it's that it's you like there's the implication correct or not when we hear a singer songwriter say use the word i that they're talking about that the character they're talking about is is themselves and you know it might not it's probably often untrue and like people make stuff up all the time that's their artists but like we, <laughs> as, a, as a listener you you're sort of you assume that like oh this is like james taylor is talking about his experience you know, like, and about what's real to, you know, the th- things that, things that really happened, things he really felt like, you know, and, and Steely Dan had all of these kind of distancing devices that made you question that. But I think it was, it was also that like, yeah, there's something about like, they sort of met in the middle and they kind of imagined this person who did things that maybe they wouldn't have done necessarily, you know, like, right. sort of, you know, cause that's the, you know, the one, like the character that doesn't get depicted in this book, um, you know, we kind of went with everybody who's a proper name, uh, but mm. the the other sort of fictional protagonist that's floating through all of these songs is Mr. Steely Dan, is this I who is kind of a very, you know, it's not, you know, and I think sometimes it's Donald, sometimes it's Walter, sometimes though they're imagining sort of like, what if this guy, you know, what would uh, some person who's not us do? And I think there's this, it was weird to, it's it was weird 
I, it seems like, and he's talked about this. I think it was it was strange for him, and it required some adjustment to to you know to write without a partner, just because it was just you out there. But then you know, it, and 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 that that was that felt sort of he felt sort of exposed. I think in a way that you know he he didn't before. But you know, also he's was you know Nightfly is very much like steeped in kind of a boomer childhood that is very is very much donald's background and his story and like he's writing about like having a party in the fallout shelter in the backyard in the suburbs and all of that and i think you know but that's what i love i mean i write about this in the book but like the the reason the solo albums in addition to being great solo albums they're on their in their own you know on their own merits just as as records like i you know record like 11 tracks of whack by donald uh, by uh, walter becker's you know first solo album okay, yeah. or yeah or the nightfly or you know all of those uh, like is that you can you can see you can start to see who was contributing what like once you listen to the songs mm -hmm. they wrote by themselves the lyrics they wrote and sang by themselves like it sort of illuminates maybe a little bit of what the contribution was like it's never it's never precise obviously but you can see a little more about what each of those two guys was bringing to the table in their collaboration so i i you know i think those are those are worth it uh, for for that reason, I mean, uh, you know, I think they're great. I've been really uh, on a eleven tracks of whack bender again lately. Interesting. I, you know, I I love Nightfly, but I I have not. I, that's one I like. Give it a run every once in a while, but I've not really dug into eleven wax tracks. I have to. I have to do that. It's really like I. I mean, you you know, it sounds like it's it's very much of its era in terms of production, and it's if you kind of if it if that stuff grates on your ear, then it's then it's going to be hard. It's a little <laughs> bit of a '90s, you know. It sounds like a '90s studio album, like by you know. But I think gotcha. that's kind of what I what I love about it, and you know, I I, I wish I, I've said this a lot, but I, I wish that we had more uh, of of uh, Walter's stuff out there. I wish there was more than just the the, the two. Uh, you know that and circus money. I wish there's you know kind of mm. a bigger solo solo corpus, but you know it's it's Steely Dan. They don't work fast. They're, it's not they're you know prolific is not the word. <laughs> yeah. Well, so uh, all over the place, but I'm going to back this up a little bit it, because you just reminded me with the idea of grading on people's ears because it it, it is very specific sound. And I think it takes, and it's an acquired taste that you kind of have to, I don't know, like you, you're, you're following the music, the music, you're not, you, you, the music lets you in. You don't let the music into your, your life, I think in many ways. And I've found that way. And you kind of detailed the way you came to the fandom in the book. And I think it's, it's the first time I like truly was like, that is exactly it. I, I, you almost come to it like, and I, with an, a semi ironic, wouldn't it be funny if I listened to Steely Dan kind of thing? And because, because you've heard them all again, there are seven huge radio hits. Like I grew up with a dad who only listened to classic rock radio. So I'm like, I like do it again. I like reeling the ears. What, what is the other stuff? I mean, I've, I've gotten further down the path and it's like a little too, uh, funky, jazzy, weird, weirdness for me. And then all of a sudden it just starts to slowly creep up on you and it creeps up. And then you kind of move up the timeline with them until. For me, my girlfriend is like, why are we listening to Gaucho again? How do you like this? What is happening? And and you're just there's just like something where it's like, I don't know, something primal lizard brain in the back of my mind has clicked into place. And now I love this. So is that that was sort of your experience if you just want to talk about like the, the semi ironic beginnings of now something that's that you love so much? 
Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I said, like I said, I'm, I'm 45, like my kind of moment of, you know, really that there's, you know, the, the, the moment that your taste kind of takes, takes shape, you know, like when, you know, like when you're 18, 19 or whatever, that was, you know, that was for me, it was uh, punk rock and indie rock and uh, things that, you know, and, and like hip hop, but like, you know, certain kinds of hip hop where like grit was really important in the sound and like a sort of like, mm -hmm. a, like a real sort you know, made on cheap samplers kind of DJ premiere, you know, bomb squad kind of thing, like all of that, like, and, you know, uh, it, it, I think there was, I kind of, it, there was a set of kind of, prejudices that i internalized uh, from from reading rock criticism of that time and just from what i was into and what i kind of you know associated with authenticity and realness the and you know a lot of it was was production sound it was like the way that things sounded because if it sounded dirty if it sounded a little fucked up a little lo-fi like you kind of knew that that was you were that you were, you were in safe territory, and you know I kind of I, I was like anything that sounded too slick and too studio is just you know is, is not for me. And, you know, I would be very much like, you know, so it's like that includes like jazz after a certain point, you know, like, right. <laughs> sure. like it just you'd be like, <laughs> oh, I don't know how I feel about this. And, you know, over time, you start to figure out that, you know, those those things are dumb, uh, like those rules are, you know, that like, you don't, you're, you're, you're but uh, yeah. So I think the way that I like probably, like, you know, I've like this is I've sort of told this origin story a lot, but like it was uh, the Minutemen, the great uh, San Pedro uh, punk band, the Minutemen, punk trio, Mike Watt, mm -hmm. uh, D. Boone, George Hurley, uh, covered on their uh, probably their best album, Double Nickels on a Dime. Uh, they covered um, uh, Dr. Wu. Along with a few other things that, you know, they, they, they covered Ain't Talking About Love by Van Halen. And you know, so if there's a Creedence cover, like, they, you know, they, they, they're they sort of working their way into these various kind of classic rock things. And it turns out that the uh, the reason they covered Dr. Wu is because George Hurley, the drummer, was a huge Steely Dan fan. He was always like playing Steely Dan in the van uh, as they were touring. And so they ended up, they record this version where it's, you know, two vocals. It's Mike Watt and either speaker kind of you know just don't seem right i was stuck out here all night it's like a little bit it's just it kind of turns it into like a country song a little bit and i think at some point in you know this was you know we're talking now about like the late 90s when i would have been getting into this like discovering this that record's from like uh, 1982 i think but like um the you know i sort of was really my big phase of Minutemen fandom was later because i was too young um so late 90s when you could buy a lot of classic rock vinyl for like a buck you know which is no longer really the case it used to be like before before streaming the best way to sort of like you know the best like bargain way to kind of investigate the canon was vinyl because vinyl was really cheap and like now it's like you know it's ridiculous now it's like you know everything's everything's 40 dollars. it's crazy uh, so I bought a copy of Katie Lied because it had Dr. Wu on it. And I wanted to know what the original Katie Lied, what the version of Dr. Wu sounded like. And there was an element of like, can you believe what if I bought a Steely Dan record today? Like, and just kind of in the <laughs> way right. that, you know, but it was also like a curiosity because you would see certain things in the bin all the time. And like, you would kind of, you would, and eventually it would be like, you know, like, you could buy based on covers and based on, you know, things that you're sort of like, I always wanted, you know, and so I feel like there was, you know, there's this one record store in Boston that I probably, you know, I probably got, you know, the, 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 the 12 
best Joni Mitchell albums for $12 there over the years. And like things that were sort of, you know, like just at that time, just nobody was, nobody was checking for because it wasn't like, you know, deep funk or something that you could sample really. And it was just kind of like there in the bins. But I think, yeah, it was initially very, I'm taking way too long. This this story is supposed to get shorter as I tell it again, but it's getting longer every time. (laughs) More Uh, detail, more texture. More detail. So there I am. Yeah. Yeah. What's the sign? Tell me Well, you would go downstairs. It was a downstairs record store. Oh, I love that. In Boston. So you'd go down to like kind of this basement space um, that it was like shared. It's like if you went, I think I forget what was there was maybe like a computer store on the right. And then on the left was in your ear. And uh, I bought so much stuff there because it was like 40 records for $20 or something like that. And so like there's like a lot of my collection. My collection grew a lot from that place. And there were just Steely Dan records. And so I, you know, I, I ended up, you know, coming back to Katie Lyde and being like, uh, listening to the rest of Katie Lyde and being like, okay, this is not the sort of spyro gyra fusion bullshit that I was sort of told that it was <laughs> by the sort of slightly older rock critics of my, of my time that I was reading and kind of internalizing and taking as, as, as gospel. Like, and, and it's, there was, there's something else going on here than what I was sort of informed that this was because a lot of the stuff that follows in Steely Dan's wake, a lot of fusion is kind of bad, you know, like a, there's, there's, there's a yeah. lot that's good, but the, the, you know, the, the, there's, you know, a whole lot of chaff in with the wheat and <laughs> you know, the yacht rock stuff is like in a lot of ways, it's, it, you know, it some of it is really cool and like really like fun to listen to but it doesn't necessarily have the kind of multi-layered thing going on that Steely Dan has. And so it's like some of those prejudices are, are right. Like some of that music is bad and some like, you know, like jazz from the 1980s, like gets harder to, it's like, it's not one of those things where it's like any jazz record from 1964 is going to be pretty great. Like, you know, just by, it's going to sound pretty good. Like it's just, it's just going to be, as you go further in. So it was this thing where it was like, okay, this isn't exact. This isn't what I was told that it was. This isn't the thing that I sort of assumed that it was from people making jokes about like, like this was the thing. I was the person who could make jokes about. I was like, oh, is this have uh, Waddy Skunk and Cooch playing their tasty licks on it? You know, and like I would make that joke, and I didn't know who those guys were. Like, I didn't know, like, Waddy Wachtel, Skunk Baxter, and, like, uh, it's Janie Korchmer. Like, that was sort of, like, you know, but so who, those are the names of, like, famous, like, session guys who played on Steely Dan records. In some cases, at least uh, Skunk Baxter was in, it was in the band at first. Like, but that idea of, like, you know, oh, like, music made by high-priced session guys and studios, these guys, like, you know, just their egos out of control doing cocaine and like this slick music. Like, that's not for me. Like, I like a, 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 like a, a hardcore music, like a working class music of, you know, of, of Sebado or something, you know, like that. Kind of, <laughs> a, you know, working real Joe Lunchbox types like Lou Barlow. Um, <laughs> like that, you know, no disrespect, Lou. It's just so, yeah. But like, the, like yeah. So I, I just, it was a set of prejudices and like, you know, like kind of then that's what life is. Like, you realize that your sort of assumptions are wrong and you kind of recalibrate based on that. And, you know, there was just so clearly, like if you listen to something like your gold teeth too, or from Katie Lyde, or even you listen to Dr. Wu, like there's a, you know, 
there's mysteries that you can't unravel and there's stuff that you, you know, you want to dig further into. And it sort of works for me anyway, like this stuff works on an emotional level that, uh, you know, I didn't expect it to. And, you know, I think by, you know, and then by the time I was like a little older and like moved to New York and was like actually like working for the, you know, for, for rock magazines, writing for, you know, and like kind of my peers are all sort of like, you know, rock magazine bros, uh, you know, those, you know, it was the, it was the two thousands. Uh, it was very much like, you know, we were living in New York and covering like the, you know, the sort of explosion of like cool new New York mm. bands that had come out of the, you know, the strokes happening and, you know, LCD sound system and things like that. And, you know, like, uh, if that was our, that was sort of our job. And so, you know, the rebellion, I think that we engaged in was, we're not going to after work we're not going to go out to shows and like kind of go see these bands live it's like there's a like no one who's never worked for a rock magazine will understand this but there does like come a point where uh, like in that where you're like the last thing you want to do at the end of the day is go see a fucking band and like that sounds so <laughs> entitled. it's like i don't care that that sounds entitled i know that there's no way that that's not going to say that, that like somebody's like no like if you like the like the idea that like you can grow to you know it's a sort of like to, to hate contemporary music if it's your job in the same way that you could grow to hate sandwiches if you work at a sandwich place um so we would go home and like hang out and like you know hang out at each other's houses and we would be listening to steely dan and we would be listening to uh grateful dead bootlegs and kind of talking about that and that was the that was the way that was like you know because like how do you how do you like say like fuck the man if the man is your boss at the rock magazine and the man is telling you like you know you need to be out at mercury lounge like uh, you know watching the walkman play or something and it would be like no we're gonna go we're gonna listen to europe 72 and talk about it um you know that's it so it's yeah and like i think that was so there's like really it's uh, it was it was a private thing and a small thing and then it became something that was like kind of my friends had and I had in common and we sort of we would talk all about that and just be like what are these records what are these records what the how do you how do you write gaucho like how do you write that song gaucho like what is going on with this like this dude in a spangled poncho like it's it, what what's that like yeah, this kind of wild sort of <laughs> homoerotic fantasia set in a fictional superdome, a fictional sports arena. Like, it's just like, uh, yeah, it's the craziest shit. And so that was like, it just once the, you know, once I did any actual investigation of this, like everything that I had thought about it was clear, it was revealed, you know, was revealed to be to be wrong. And like uh, that there was, a, you know, and that I think honestly, like they're, you know, Steely Dan are, except in the way that they sound like, so punk and so kind of like in the spirit of you know because like like i was like steely dan is not for me but like my favorite band was pavement like that sort of and it's like it's <laughs> right. who are in so many ways like the you know in that sort of in that kind of you know like obfuscatory way that steely dan is they're so much aligned uh, with that and like Malcolmus has talked about like you know it is on record as as being as being a fan of you know of that music uh in a way so it, it, it like yeah it, it's all like I don't think people though grow up in the same way that I did anymore like I don't think that like I think the part of the reason they're so popular now and the, that sort of young people are getting into Steely Dan younger people you know are is that I don't think that uh, I, I don't I just don't think that like, you know, the sort of your your average like 22 year old has absorbed as many 
fucking record reviews as I had by that age. Mm. And as many sort of written by yeah. people older than them. I just don't think it's the <laughs> same. I think it's like, like maybe you're reading Pitchfork, but like, I don't know that that's sort of, it's just not as central to the way people consume stuff. Cause when you're young, it's like at that point, or like for me, it was like almost like, Oh, I feel like I'm catching up on like decades of culture. And like, I need, you know, it's useful or it feels useful to have somebody tell you like this stuff over here, you don't need to worry about. And you don't need to, you know, it's like, you don't need to pay right. attention. Yeah. Write it. it off. You're good. Yeah. You don't need it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, like the, Jonathan Lethem has talked about like the urge to among rock critics to say that X new Bob Dylan thing is his best since blood on the tracks, because it allows you to sort of leave out everything that happened between blood on the tracks and this, like it's sort of don't worry you know, and like, as I've gotten older, like I start, I've started to feel like that sort of writing that way uh, is like a disservice to the the person that you're, you're is reading you because you're what you're, you're, you're sort of like, you know, it, or a disservice to art or something like that, that you're just kind of like, you don't ever want to be the person saying this is not, don't worry, this is not worth you paying attention to it. Like, I feel like that's kind of a, it's like not a, you know, responsible way to talk about things, which is, you know, so it's been interesting to see, like you know, why the Steely Dan is thing has developed um, in among the sort of the resurgence of Steely Dan fandom among younger people, because I think it's really down to like you don't the gatekeepers are kind of not at the gate anymore. There's nobody keeping the gate. There's nobody saying like you know, like at a certain point, if you'd like if you if you were a young person trying to figure out what whether or not you should like steely dan it's like i don't i don't have it here but like my bible was like the uh, the the spin magazine alternative record guide which is like yeah, this sure, big sort sure. of compendium like and it's a great book and there's like really great writing in there but like steely dan's not in there so it was like okay i don't need to worry about clearly like they've sort of grandfathered in like certain people as being alternative and so it's like kiss is in here and captain beefheart is in here and whatever and so like i will further investigate those things and like you know king sunny a day or whatever like i will go back to those mm. but i don't need to think about i don't need to worry about steely dan and like if you were sort of like at a, at a younger age you would look at the first edition of the rolling stone book and see dave marsh being like these early steely dan records are okay but they got sort of too jazzy and too abstruse after a while and like you know thumbs down you know sort of to, to that and so you'd be like okay i don't have to i don't have to worry about that i don't think anybody i don't like i don't know that that same thing happens like i don't in the in the same way i think it's because of streaming because it's so easy to check stuff out and not really sort of and just experience it almost in a vacuum like sort of divorced from like a cultural context like i think that's kind of useful in a way because you can just listen to it and if you listen to Tilly dan like you're like oh this is a really like these are very pleasing albums there's something really like you're hearing kind of amazing musicians at the top of their game playing the weirdest shit you've ever heard and it's <laughs> like if that's that might it's just there i think that like it's just they're more likely to work on you in that way because if you don't have kind of those things any of those any of those prejudices um going for you that's uh absolutely well so i mean i'm i'm slightly i'm think i fall firmly into the danissance that you sort of like millennial danissance where it's like, I was, I think probably just before Walter Becker died in 2017, I was just starting to get into them. And I think that that movement was happening. It was kind of interesting to see that 
thing. And I feel like when he passed away, that like kicked it into overdrive for me. And then it was interesting yeah. to find all these other people who were also sort of experiencing the same thing of like, these guys are great. These are, these are awesome. And uh, I thought it was just kind of a fascinating, your, your point that it's like, they, they kind of hadn't been strip mined for nostalgia yet either. Like they were not a thing that was uh, just completely, you know, laid waste to by people being like, you know, it was great. It's a, there was still the overlapping resentment or overhanging resentment towards them as like the the man or again like the studio album guys that then at a certain point it was like when the floodgates opened they just came pouring out and you're like this is awesome i feel like fleetwood mac is kind of similar where it's like they were sort of written off as like pop mm-hmm. studio the thing they want you to listen to and then they kind of had a similar resurgence uh, and there was that one TikTok, but you know, besides that, they were but even before yeah. that. Yeah, I feel like they were starting to be. It was a it was a weird thing to be into in like 2008 to be super. Like I remember, like I think whenever like we were all really stoked about uh, me and my my rock critic bros buddies. Uh, I don't want to say bros; they're not all, but like they're not all men. But like it, like <laughs> it was that that group of people. But uh, like when uh, they reissued Tusk with the Tusk, with the demos for Tusk, like those like really yeah. wild sort of lo-fi Lindsey Buckingham kind of like just, you know, just coked up in a men's room kind of doing vocals and <laughs> claps and stuff like <laughs> the best fucking great. And like, I, I, but I think that was sort of, that was another thing that was kind of like had nothing to do with the sort of what was going on in the culture at that moment, you know, arguably. Uh, and like now I feel like that is very much like being like the millennial interest in Fleetwood back for whatever reason it's and that TikTok sort of comes at the end of it that's like the mainstreaming of it I think even before that like yeah. it was kind of like you, this was something that people were were up on and it's and again I think it's something that you know for a while it was like this was this was the antithesis and there was something about it was like really important to for you know like it's like critics and the people who are controlling that conversation used some of this music as uh you know like to uh, like in order to establish the importance of something like punk or then indie rock after Mm -hmm. it and all of those things you had to say like music had gotten shitty and this is the and it had gotten (laughs) bloated (laughs) And all of these people had too much money and they were doing too much cocaine and their records were sounding bad for this and this reason. And they were self-indulgent and all of that. It's like, you know, like I remember like there was the PBS history of rock documentary, uh, which is like a multi-part sort of existence, like the whole history of the whole thing. Um, and like, I remember watching that and like the episode about punk, the episode that's about like, the Velvet Underground and you know Jonathan Richmond and all of those things like it begins with like it's uh, it's I think it's Rick Wakeman from Yes in an empty stadium sound checking in an empty stadium playing 14 organs at once and 14 synthesizers <laughs> at, at once in like a giant empty room and just like just the wankiest thing you've ever seen and then it's like cut to John Lydon looking like he's going to burn yeah. down a nursery school like and it's like this is sort of you know so it's like it's like you know this you have to say like you know it, because it's hard to sort of make the sometimes like for a mainstream kind of publication critic to make the case for punk in the same way 
like you have to say like oh this was the this it, it had gone awry mm -hmm. and this kind of set the odometer back to zero and made everything so i understand like what that what that impulse is because it's like there were certain it's like you know there did this thing did happen like where you know the the kind of the 60s icons who survived like became this aristocracy and kind of got kind of like further away from what they were great at and like in, in many cases and like you kind of had to say like okay this was a this was a clarifying moment and throw a lot of stuff out with that mm -hmm. and i think you sort of work at like but at the same time like you know it's that's a, like i said it's like a set of, of prejudices and so it's interesting to see people of your generation you know not to be like of your generation i'm not that much older <laughs> than you but people of a younger generation like i think about like you know we did this uh one of my favorite music podcasts out right now is uh, uh joker men um which is mm. two guys in their 30s talking who started out talking their way through all of the bob dylan that kind of is falls in between blood on the tracks and uh you know his best since blood on the tracks like getting into the you know the, like <laughs> The like down in the grooves of it and like the things that you know the ones that people don't necessarily talk about as much and that the ones that are kind of like sort of look at you know and it's a it's a really interesting way to to look at that because once you're once you're like if you know really getting into 80s bob uh is a way is a way to do that but i think it's i think it's interesting because it, it's from the perspective of yeah we're all you know yeah, we're going to access this in a different way and we're going to sort of experience it in a different way. And so I, I I try to, you know, my perspective on Steely Dan is kind of weird because it's from before that. And it's this, I feel like it's almost like a historical blip, uh, you know, in a way. Um, but I can only, I can only write from my perspective. So, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's very, it's, it was interesting to see, again, something that I felt like Oh, I was a part of this happening, and it was kind of fascinating to see it covered in in the book. Uh, well, I just want like you you had been talking about Katie Lied, and uh, this book is so it, it goes without saying the book is really good, and and it's a it gives you an excuse to listen along to all these things, which was like the the, the richest experience you could ever hope for as you like go along with it, and truly. And I say this, it like makes you listen to these things in a way that I have never listened to them before. Or I hear things I've never heard before. And I would never, you know, heard Katie lied the way that I, the way that you kind of describe it, where it's like, oh, it's this kind of slightly muted. It doesn't quite, you know, like there's something, there's just something off in the recording studio of that. And so uh, I don't know if it, the book, it, it operates like this key that unlocked so much for me in terms of their you know, discography and specifically that album and going back to it. And uh, is that also the, uh, like, I guess I, I'm, I'm sending you up to tell uh, the story of, about the mustard. And if you don't mind, because that's yeah, the most yeah. fascinating, like almost like profoundly, like unbelievable thing I've heard. It's just like, it's amazing. So I just want to set you up for that and say again, like this book is, it's, it's so phenomenal in what it does to like, just again, unlock these things and, and, and go into the weeds on it. And uh, so anyways, I'll let, I'll let you tell that yeah. story. I mean, that's it's, it's so that's in the like in the liner notes to the there's a really great when they reissued those records, uh, kind of remastered the Steely Dan catalog whenever the the, the first time they did that in the I think in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, like the, Donald and Walter wrote these amazing liner notes uh, for all those records. And so they talk about this in, in, the, in, the, in there. But there's also an essay that uh, Denny Diaz wrote that uh, uh who's was in steely dan at that time was you know and uh mm. sort of about the sort of the experience 
of of making that record. And uh, to me, this is a story about like this specifically Katie Live. This piece of it is you know, because they would go on to make records that were pretty much like Asia is pretty much a technically perfect record. It's a sort of, I think it's an also an aesthetically perfect record, but like sort of like technically it is, they would, I met somebody recently who was like used to work in a stereo store. And like, that was like what they would put on to be like, you need to hear the TK 421s. They sound just incredible. <laughs> like that would be how you would actually sort of, you know, like when the, like yeah. in Boogie Nights Bucks was yes. with the, the with coffee <laughs> yes. cups. I was like, can't you hear the bass? Isn't it kicking you right? So like that was that was what they would in real life. Like that was what they would use. Supposedly, Asia was when they were selling that when vinyl when they're selling record players and turntables. And then like once the Nightfly came out, it's like that was how they would sell CDs because it would sound so good. It was so digital. It's like sort of you know. Um, so they would go on to make perfect records, but like Katie Lied is about sort of the impossible. To me, it's like uh, the, the story I tell about Katie Lied is about, the, it's about the impossibility of making a perfect piece of art. And like the, the, that, like something is always going to be working against you because they, you know, they make this album with like, again, the best players they have, you know, it's like, they're starting to become a fully studio based band at this point. So they kind of have their pick of who's going to do it. You know, Michael McDonald is on backing vocals and all of that. It's like, it's a great, you know, great Steely Dan collection of great collection of songs. They re record it using this uh, special noise reduction technology. Mm -hmm that I think is sort of, it's like similar to Dolby. I don't think it is Dolby, but maybe it's Dolby. I forget exactly what it is. And when they go to master it to vinyl, when they go to the stage of like sort of cutting with the, the literally like cutting with the lathe, the thing that they are going to base all of the records on, the kind of template for the records, they cannot get the sound right. They cannot get it to sort of to come across uh, properly. And, you know, so that's the whole story. And like no version, like they, they, no matter what they do, they eventually just kind of give up and like they hate Katie Lied. Like they sort of, as a result, right. Donald Walter end up sort of like really sort of like Katie Lied to them is a failure. And Katie Lied's fucking awesome. Like, but like they can't get to that. They just mentally, they just, they know what it was supposed to sound like. And they know that like, oh, these snares sound muddy and like, it doesn't sound great. But there's all of these sort of technical problems. Like Katie Light is like a haunted record. It's like, a, so there's something about it. There's like gremlins sort of working against them at all times. And there's a thing, I forget exactly what it is. Like the moment that they're trying to fix, it's like something in a guitar solo. It's like some little punch in that they're trying to do like to fix some little minute kind of detail of the sound and no matter what they do they cannot get it to record and to stick to the tape and they end up sort of and but they've got this master tape that they're trying to add this little bit to and they end up sending it to like the lab to the tape company and look they they lied a lot about a lot of things and like this could be a made up story but apparently they find out somebody they've like an, the company analyzes the tape and they're like as near as we can figure out there is a drop of mustard in the in the, in the somewhere in the manufacturing process like someone was eating a sandwich and like a drop of mustard and as i say this to you like this sounds like like absolutely it's insane <laughs> it sounds insane but th there's something where it's like you know there will always be you, you know, no matter how much you torment yourself trying to make it perfect, you are always going to be undone by human error because you're you are human and there are humans that you're you're dealing with humans and you're sort of like there's no like we can like 
you know, and I don't know, maybe we're at the point now where we're getting AI into the picture and like we can yeah. actually remove the human being from the artistic process and like things will be truly perfect. But like that to me is it's sort of represents everything that is about Steely Dan because they were human and flawed and they were trying to make this perfect music. And, you know, because we are human and flawed, we cannot make perfect objects. We cannot, you know, we cannot do it. And, you know, we're not. Uh... So it's, there's something there, there, there's something about that that I just find so kind of uh, heroic and, you know, <laughs> funny that they're trying to do this and that, you know, they like, and, it, and it's because like, you know, some joker at the factory, like has, you know, has made this mistake and like, like the tape is, de is defective and, and all of that, but you know, and yeah, it's, I, I, so there's no, you don't really know what Katie light is supposed to sound like. And like the best, I think example of this too is, uh, you know, in some ways, the best Steely Dan song, the most representative Steely Dan song is the second arrangement. It's the song that mm -hmm. they were recording for Gaucho. It's a great song. It would probably be the best song on Gaucho, It'd probably be the, you know, as, as big of a hit as like, you know, Pay 19 or whatever had it come out. Um, it, but it never did because they were recording it and they sort of took forever to record it. And at some point, an engineer erased the master tape like went back over the master tape to do some kind of a pass that they had to do some sort of junior engineer and they lost like their sort of master recording they had finally gotten it down the way that they wanted it and it was lost and they could never recreate it and so it's there's versions of it floating around and people have cleaned it up and fixed and just sort of tried to you know fix this and like it's at some point somebody said this to me but like at some point they're gonna somebody's gonna ai this and make a version of the second arrangement and i'm gonna <laughs> have to you know be like how do i feel <laughs> about this <laughs> or, you know and we're gonna be confronted with like somebody's gonna be like this is what it was supposed to be but right now it doesn't exist in any sort of finished form and so it's kind of the thing that you know it's the the mountaintop that they never got to and that they sort of dissolved as a band because they couldn't that's why like it's why they had to pull out it's why third world man is on gaucho because they had to pull mm. out another song from kind of the, the racks a little bit though some of the older material to kind of fill that spot because they're like forget it we're not ever going to get second range back it's so we're so broken by this process we're so <laughs> dispirited and we're never going to be able to it's never going to be what we want it to be and it's like, you know, it, it's, it, you didn't ask this question, but like, it, it, if you're, when you're writing a book, these are the kind of things that you think about too. It's like any, any sort of big creative project or whatever you want it to be, you know, what it was supposed to be in your mind. And, oh. you know, you are up against, you know, what you like, if you're, you know, if you're psychologically healthy, this isn't as much of a problem, but you're, if you're, you know, if you struggle in any way with this stuff you know what it, you know what you wanted it to be and you're fighting again you're like no i'm trying to get it down in a way that sort of is like is the way that it reads in my head and like if you can't get there it's really frustrating and you know it was amazing to be writing this book and writing about perfectionism writing about the sort of how perfectionism can ruin you and undo you and while also sort of having the perfectionist impulse 
kind of plague me as it does sort of as me as a writer and like sort of struggling with that same thing and kind of like it, it's it was ironic because I was I would be sort of thinking one thing of like oh it's so sad that they couldn't get out of their own way and kind of experience this thing but then at the same time I was like if this book isn't fucking perfect like I'm going to jump in front of traffic like it's sort of in like you know that so, so like it, it's you know and you know it, it's just your mind is like you've compartmentalized these two things you're able to sort of hold these two thoughts in in your head at once but it was like yeah it's like because you're you know being perfectionist in a book about the the kind of the images of perfectionism yeah <laughs> the ultimate perfectionist <laughs> and all of that the the, the john mackinrose of uh you know of, of the studio um it's like yeah it, it's it's ironic and funny and you're you know but uh yeah it's it, we, we can only we, we we have to try though we have to try to make the thing that's in our heads we got to try to build the, the, the mind palace and in, in real life i think as you put it in the book and then again it's something that will stick with me is the is the tombstone of like good intentions or the, the tombstone of perfectionism it's like that's all you can build really at the end of the day of what's in your mind and i, I think that well i think that's i think we've like looped back around to like the perfect most steely dan kind of ending we could have found uh possible a, a perfectionist trying to write about perfectionists is like that's a steely dan character uh that that yes in the in that he is doomed that guy he's doomed and he's telling himself that he's not doomed uh <laughs> he know everybody can see it except for him uh no i mean it's yeah that's that that was what it was that 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 that's what it's like um but uh you know i i think that the example that's the that's you know what we can learn from donald walter it's like you know you like you should try to to make it as great as you can be and you know you shouldn't settle for like pretty good you know or, or whatever like I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of merit in that and like believing in like what you're doing and believing in like you know actually like executing your your vision in, in that way um but just don't yeah try not to drive yourself crazy um, yeah, but let it destroy you anybody <laughs> you can you know you've just listened to uh, uh you've treated yourself to a three and a half hour podcast about quantum criminals by alex papadimus and joan lemay uh back to work on your masterpiece because if you're at this if you're at this point like yeah i don't think anybody likes books this much who's not a writer so you're probably putting off something you're supposed to be doing so go and get down with that there's nothing writers love to do more than than to put off writing. Uh, yeah. as, as as a writer, I can say that specifically, I don't find anything to do to not write. So yeah, this was, no, this exactly. Great that's for what that. well, <laughs> podcast, podcasting is for. It's so that writers don't. It's a thing you can do that without like that's kind of like yeah, you don't have to write for a little while, but you've done something, you've accomplished that. That's the yeah, best effective. Yeah. yeah, like I've done this every day this week. I've done something like this, and it's like oh, that's like it's kind of it's yeah, that's the like yeah, not having the pressure to create for a for a moment uh is you know that's that's the greatest thing ever like feeling like feeling like you've done something without having to write you know that's nothing yeah. like it uh oh. anyway tyler um i'm gonna let you go <laughs> <laughs> thank you for hosting now i appreciate you wrapping it up uh well i have i, have, I do have one more question for you yeah please please gas in the car there is gas in the car you know, I actually need to yeah. put. I, you know, there's not gas in my car right now. Is the truth? Yeah, that, I, the answer, but, but yes. <laughs> in so, a if you need to, sense, <laughs> in a spiritual sense, do the people down the hall know who we are? Yes, they do. Is there gas in the car? There will be. Like by the time we need there to be, there there will be. But you know, the truth like is, old, yeah, 
old LSD chemist who needed to get on the run quickly. There would not be, but there is gas. There will be gas. Yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. No, those, you got to ask yourself those, those, those questions. That's my, you know, that's my, that's my favorite thing about it. I'm going to try and get that going at, at every event. I'm going to try and do the, the, the call out. As you know, if you've ever been to the, the beacon theater in New York to see Steely Dan, or, you know, it happens at a lot of places, but yeah, you can get the sort of like one side of the room. It's like, is there gas in the <laughs> yes, there's, there's gas in the, gas gas in the car. And the be everybody hitting that, hitting that high note. Um, uh, well, here, let me, let me, uh, I'll officially thank, I'll let you go. Uh, my thanks to Tyler back. Austin for being here <laughs> on the Skylight Books podcast. I'm sorry. I'm a podcast host. I cannot, I'm like, just like, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's fine. It's, I'm overbearing. I'm sorry. It's, it's fine. It's, it's, it's fine. I really appreciate you having me on here and you know, everybody Skylight Books, if you're listening to this, you already know, but just come out, buy some books, drop some, drop some, some books. Come up May 31st. Come see Alex live and in person. Come by Quantum Criminals. Uh, it's going to be at 1814. It'll be in our arts annex going forward, except for all the months that it's going to be my staff pick. Uh, so when, it, when it'll be in the main store. That's uh, right. but, I, I yeah. love the arts annex, by the way. That's where I want to be. Oh. That's where that's my that's my my people. That's right over there in the arts annex. It's over there, it's all a, the it's graphic cool, novel people. Good place to be. And I mean, a more fitting, perfect sort of like it's a music book with some kick-ass art in it. I mean, that's exactly where it belongs. It's just like a really, it's going to be like a really cool book to just kind of like have laying around. It's going to, I pick it up all the time just because it's really, it's just so visual. It's so, it's so great. And it just kind of has this kind of life to it. Um, so it'll be there. Just walk on, walk on down the street from the main place and from the big skylight to the smaller, the satellite. Uh Skylight. Pick it I'm up. just gonna be I'm just gonna be standing there next to it hoping that I get uh, <laughs> So I'll probably be there. I'll sign it for you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Skylight Books podcast series. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to check out the book featured in this episode or others, please visit skylightbooks.com. If you're in the Los Angeles area, stop by for one of our live in-person author events. You can find a calendar on our website. If you like this podcast, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Our music is by Duck the Piano Wire. Till next time. Mm-hmm.